are here. In the 11FS office in WeWork Allgate London for episode 60 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto might just meet the institutions. Today we bring you the ASX head says new DLT system could save billions, Coinbase CEO issues a stark warning and Venezuela just devalued the Bolivia by 95% and pegged it to a cryptocurrency. All this and more on today's show. All right, I am joined by my lovely co-host, the one and only uh, Sarah Feenan from Clearmatics. How are you doing, Sarah? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you, Simon. How are you? I'm really, really well. We've got some great guests today as well. We're joined by Alex Hearn, who's a technology reporter from The Guardian. Alex, how are you? Hello, I'm good, thank you. I'm tired. I just got back from San Francisco. Oh, wow, that's a long flight. Did you get in today? No, no, I got in on uh, Sunday morning. Okay, so you're still it's, trying it, well, to... It's that second day wave of jet lag. It's, that's the one. Let's if get I you caffeinated. Sense, <laughs> <laughs> well, 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 I'm sure there's lots of crypto news that'll um, act as caffeine for you. Uh, we're joined by uh, Michele Cotoni. Have I said your name right, Michele? Correct. Oh, man, I'm feeling good about that. Simone would be proud of me. Um, you're Director of Digital Assets and Blockchain at State Street. How are you doing, sir? Yes, all good, all good. My last week in the office, so I'm... Uh... You're about to, to go on vacation. And, uh, yeah. I like I the sound of that. I'm, I'm very jealous of you immediately. And, and we're joined by returning guest, uh, Tina Baker-Taylor, who's CMO at CoinFlow. Tina, how are you doing? Hey, Simon. I'm good. Thanks for having me. No, thank you for being back on the show. Uh, all right. So first story comes from Coindesk. And uh, as I read in the intro, uh, the Australian Stock Exchange or Securities Exchange, I think they're actually called, their head says the new DLT system could save billions. Apparently, it could save as much as 23 billion, I think that's Australian dollars, in its effort to replace its settlement system with a distributed ledger. Dominic Stevens, MD and CEO of ASX, believes uh, a DLT in place of clearinghouse electronic sub-register system chess uh, would offer greater efficiency for transmitting messages and accessing information. The platform's based on technology by Digital Asset Holdings, of which ASX is a partial owner. Do you want to give some context on this one, Sarah? Because this one's been rumbling on for a little while. Digital Asset, as we know, Blythe Masters is the CEO. Um, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on. Yeah, so they, they're planning to go live with this in 2020. And what, so what Chess is, it's a register for holders of securities. And the issuers and members of this have a contractual relationship with um, the parent company of ASX to maintain that register of securities. So when they talk about settlement here, they're really talking about the trade side of the leg, the transfer of ownership of that and not the cash leg there. Don't know the details of this one. Um, maybe we'll find out soon, but I believe they'll still be using SWIFT for the cash settlement. Michele, the Australian market's an interesting one, isn't it? Because it's always considered very vertically integrated um, across the post-trade life cycle. What does vertically integrated mean compared to, say, the US? And, and you know, what's, what's interesting about this one for you? It's a great question, Simon. From a market infrastructure perspective, uh, when MIFID 2 came in, in Europe, started bringing that, those siloses in the, from, you know, from a post-trade perspective, uh, started breaking them, right? So once you had the, the stock exchange linked to the clearinghouse, linked to the CSD, Central Security Depository, all in one go. Now, that sometimes brings efficiency, sometimes it doesn't. So the competition authority in Europe decided to, to open that up. In the US, you have a different model. You have DTCC, at the, or DTC, how, how they call it, at the bottom of it. But Australia, is a, being insular, being an island, has developed kind of a different model. All is in one big exchange group, right? So that's kind of the silo approach. And that's why I was kind of happy a few years ago when the, the blockchain challenge was taken there, because that's what it would solve a lot of problems. Because you didn't need lots of different actors to get together to make the thing work. But surely the... I mean, at, at 30,000 feet, if it's all siloed, surely they could just build this centralized. That, that's another very good point. So it brings back the, uh, the idea where private DLTs make sense or not. Yeah. Right? And from, from the way I read the news and I dug deeper, I dug deeper into the investor relations deck, that $23 billion is the cost of the superannuation pension funds and the industry. So 100 million is actually the cost of running that, that uh, market structure. If you think about in Europe, post-trade revenues are around 20, 
25 billion dollars a year so it's been blown up a little bit yeah there's some there's some marketing in this 23 billion number um but this is on the back of a couple of weeks ago where uh, there were a number of reports sort of doubting whether uh, the asx would implement dlt and if it did uh, it was as a package of a lot of upgrades that it had to do anyway yeah i think going back to the 23 billion point they mentioned in the article that's the reconciliations that all of the different members and, and sub members yeah exactly the the, uh, the network of um trades that's, uh, so it's not ASX like themselves that. that would impact that. It's if everybody adopted this thing that ASX did, the industry could yeah, could get to that. But that's the benefit so- for the ASX's customers and partners. Yes, and that's why in Australia could probably work. That's why in Europe and the US it would be harder to do, even though a lot of companies are trying to implement these uh, DLTs also internally or uh, as in little consortium or with some specific partners, because there is benefit in that reconciliation, as Sarah, you were talking about. Yeah, I and mean, I think the benefits of the single source of truth are obvious for this, but I think it's really important to make sure that you don't still maintain that single point of failure and single point of trust for something that actually is maintaining a register of all issues securities in a jurisdiction you can't have that system going down it's that resilience piece isn't it like um, one of the great advantages of distributed technology historically is that resilience thing but you always had the cost of like then syncing up all of those distributed elements and distributed systems design is extremely hard alex how are you viewing this from from a distance you know the dlt versus crypto kind of debate and, and this in in the kind of the eye of the storm as it were so one of the things that interests me about this is uh Obviously, almost every stock market in, in the developed world has a huge amount of market interest in remaining extremely centralized because of the importance of speed, effectively. You know, we, we have, uh, I, I can speak a lot to, to New York and to London, where high-speed trading is what these markets are increasingly built around. A single point of failure is bad, but at least a single point of failure affects you and all of your competitors at the same time, mm-hmm. right? The problem with multitude of points of failure is, you know, which which node do you connect your extremely expensive purpose-built fiber line to? If one node goes down and the other node stays up, that's actually kind of not great because you might have picked the wrong winner or you might just need to connect to every single instance. Well, so this was the difference between um, pre and post-trade, right, um, Michele? Because pre-trade speed matters. Post-trade, we're already pretty slow. Um, so after the trade has happened, the speed suddenly disappears as an issue. And now we're in a situation where it's almost manufacturing. We all have to do the same stuff. We're all plumbed into the same people anyway. And it's just slow because the left hand doesn't know what the other 16 hands are doing. So how do I get all of them to talk to each other? That was a weird metaphor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about risk management down yeah. there, right? It's risk management of all 16 hands. Um, <laughs> I, I could see like a, a social image here coming. Tina, do you have any views on this one? Um, I think my main view is that we've been talking about ASX for several months. The, all of these announcements keep coming out. A couple of weeks ago, we had a, a very similar discussion around digital asset holdings and ASX and, and what they're actually going to bring to market and when and the kind of the pivot around digital asset holdings. I think what I um, take away from this is that it just demonstrates just how difficult it is to implement a live blockchain project in a financial market. And that it's not, you know, something that's going to happen overnight for all of the reasons that it's we've It's the time described. horizon piece. I think Correct. it's a really interesting one. Um, look, I'm going to move on. We could talk about this one forever. Um, but the next story, I think, was uh, one that really caught my eye. Uh, again, from Coindesk.com. Apparently, California was open to allowing crypto political donations. So the California Fair Political Practices Commission met on Thursday to discuss a number of election issues, including whether candidates for public office can accept cryptocurrencies as campaign donations. During the hearing on Thursday, Chairwoman Alex Germond, I believe I've said her name right, uh, indicated that a set definition for cryptocurrency is actually needed, uh, remarking, I would be inclined to think that uh, that Bitcoin is a thing that is not US money, but is more like a currency, like the euro. But I would like to hear more. (laughs) What? (laughs) So... Yeah. I mean, this is an interesting one. It's funny money, like the euro. What is the euro? <laughs> money is divided weird. into two classes, the almighty dollar yeah, and everything, everything else. Exactly. Oh, yeah. That, is, that is their that. view, isn't it? That is their view. That, but they, they do mean by that that it's not legal tender in the US. 
uh, like the euro isn't legal tender in the US. You it, can't use it to settle your debts, including taxes, for example. Absolutely. And but I governments think, do have a habit of changing their view on whether crypto is money or not, right? Well, so it's magically money when you can make donations in it or when they want to charge you taxes. Well, I think this is the key point. You see a lot of confusion at the policy level um, and disagreement, frankly, at the policy level. You know, in the US, regular listeners will know I've, I've rolled out this trope before, but it's Bitcoin is a commodity, but it's taxed like property, but it can move like a payment and be regulated like a payment at the same time. And in certain circumstances, it can be offered as a security. It has almost every possible legal definition in the sun. It's regulated almost every possible way. It's quite challenging because this stuff's so early. And it seems like they didn't fully understand uh, the issue of what this stuff is. So they've just deferred it to next month. But Alex, are we going to see this? Are we going to see political donations coming in crypto? I think we are. Yeah, there's, uh, it's easy to sort of pick apart the problems here as as the California regulators have done you know you can you can immediately uh, on first glance point to things like oh well you know the the anonymity the pseudonymity makes it hard to regulate but you can make political donations in cash you can, which you are know, you can, anonymous <laughs> exactly exactly so it's hard to see any of those really holding water in the long term honestly if i were a politician my big fear in accepting bitcoin donations would just be the volatility it would be really gutting to take you know the full 2600 dollar maximum value and then the next day find out that actually you only had 2200 dollars, and then you know you wait a week and oh you you've actually halved your donation but you still can't take any more from that person because it gets pegged at the uh, mm-hmm. the level when it was handed. Uh, for, I think for a lot of politicians, they might prefer mm. stability. Unless you know, it's in Venezuela, well, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and what about on the upside as well? What if you get a donation, we enter another bull market, and all of a sudden you break through the ceiling of... Is, sure, exactly. Is that breaking exactly. the law? Or and what it, happens to the that money? So I believe that that's not that you, you benchmark it at the time it's handed over, because in-kind donations are a thing you can already do in uh, in the US electoral system. I just wonder whether, you know, whether elected politicians tend to minimize downside or maximize upside and my my guess is in a in a market where you know you have to be paying in dollars for almost all of your adverts for your print adverts for your billboard you're probably going to want to minimise the downside, minimise the risk of suddenly ending up without enough money to run your campaign. Michele, do you think this is a risk that the uh, kind of the general concept of crypto is kind of creating a lot of confusion and that there are sort of these perception challenges out there? Yeah, no, absolutely. And related to the story, it looks like they had a chat at the bar or wherever they went and they said, okay, what can we use this for? Oh, political donations. So, I don't know, it reminds me of all the remittances uh, use cases on uh, using crypto and how a lot of companies actually moved away from actual Bitcoin for the, the problems that you mentioned before and uh, they started using things like Ripple as kind of a, a railway. But uh, perception is still changing uh, in, in probably for the better. Yeah. And uh, there's, a, there's a lot of, uh, even within boards, within big enterprises, perception is changing dramatically. Uh, well, so um, the ICE New York Stock Exchange piece, the CME Futures, uh, we've seen the six um, Swiss Stock Exchange have looked at potentially offering futures. Like futures exposure to Bitcoin specifically does seem to be something that's becoming normal um, in, in that space and, and another asset class in a basket for investors potentially, Tina. Well, I think there's a couple things that are interesting here that that I wanted to unpick. I think the first is looking at the um, confusion around Bitcoin, for example. They're saying, is it money? Is it not money? It's designed to be anonymous. Well, it's not actually designed to be anonymous. Um, and that whole complexity around the taxonomy of what these assets are. So Global Digital Finance is putting together a taxonomy because we understand that different jurisdictions are grappling with what these things are and what they're designed to do and what we should be calling them. Um, So in this case, Bitcoin being a payment token, policymakers don't necessarily understand the differences. And I think that is very clear from this article that they're still kind of confused. The second thing is, from an American perspective, the anonymity piece. So yes, you can make cash donations. Um, If you're making a, a declared donation, the limit for a person is $2,700, I think it is. But that's not how most people donate. 
So if you really want to lobby for something, you're donating through a PAC, so a political action committee, um, which are, you know, the Americans for Better Pastures or whatever, <laughs> these names that kind of mean nothing. Americans for Better Memes. Exactly. <laughs> um, and so in that case, you can donate up to, I think it's $10,000 um, for each district or political party. Um, so when you start to get into those figures up to, there's, there's other kind of categories, it can go up to something like $35,000. So that's a considerable amount of money. Now, today, there is a lot of concern around these dark donations and how you and I are able to put money into a pot, which then gets mixed around with other people's money and then goes to fund something that we may or may not have intended. So I think that that could be a bit of a red herring thrown into this, where um, campaign donation reform is squarely kind of over here as its own separate issue. And this Bitcoin anonymity piece, if somebody kind of doesn't get their arms around this with the regulators to make them understand that it's not actually anonymous, it could cloud the issue. It's super interesting that the DEA came out a couple of weeks ago and said, I wouldn't mind if people use Bitcoin to buy drugs because it's so damn traceable. Yep, exactly. uh, it, it, like the irony of these crypto assets is they're far more traceable than cash. And it, in a way, if you're KYC at a Bitcoin exchange somewhere, then you're probably going to be known or knowable uh, to the entire system if you've ever transacted in Bitcoin. And the other thing with Bitcoin and things like it is they create that permanent record, right? So, all right, I'm going to move us on because uh, the next story comes from Forbes.com and uh, the headline is Blow to Bitcoin as the Coinbase CEO makes a start warning. He suggested that widespread mass adoption for payments is going to be a long time coming. I actually agree with him. Uh, Bitcoin price is down 70% from its highs at the end of last year. And uh, there's been many new cryptocurrencies that have been created in the uh, last couple of years have been all but wiped out, you know, sort of down 98, 99% from their all-time high. Uh, and he suggested that uh, in terms of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency adoption, we're at the same point as the internet in 1994. I've heard that meme so many times. <laughs> I think that meme probably needs to go away because this is this is probably a little bit different. But I mean, was this warning probably sensible? Like, it's interesting for somebody who's the CEO of a company that really benefits when crypto prices go up to say, like, hey, you know, long-term adoption could be a ways off yet. There's there's a lot that needs to happen. There's infrastructure to be built, but also Coinbase are building a lot of infrastructure. So maybe maybe it's it's in his long-term interest. I think it's probably. You know, in, in long-term interests, it's quite smart to try and disentangle yourself from that, right? Mm -hmm. You know, if you are Coinbase and you don't say these things, and then mass Bitcoin adoption remains quite far away, you know, all, all of the things that he's warning about now, which are probably true, mm -hmm. uh, if you if you don't say this, if you don't publicly go like, hey, you know, this is this is bad, it can look a bit like you are the company that people think you are. You know, you are up when Bitcoin's up and down when Bitcoin's down. By doing this, by distancing. Coinbase from the fortunes of Bitcoin, there's a there's a chance that he can then have people in a more receptive mood to go. I said Bitcoin would be down and it is down, but look, we're still doing great work. We've still got the infrastructure needed, and we're in here for the long haul. Bitcoin will be up in the future and we'll be there to catch it. It's interesting to me that um, Coinbase are one of those uh, A16Z darling companies. A16Z, of course, launched A16Z crypto. Um, they seem to be really piling into the space in, in quite a big way, and and this is in that space. But they also acquired Earn.com, which I don't know how, how well that had done. So they're, they're in this interesting sort of building all the things for all of the people and steadily walking towards the institutional side. I mean, Sarah, how do you see it from your perspective? Climatics obviously plays much more on the institutional side. Do you see that you can walk from Bitcoin to institutional promised land? Is that realistic or are there still some chat hurdles in the way maybe? Well, I mean, there's a number of stories I think that we've heard recently. And one of them, as you mentioned, Alex, was all of the infrastructure that Coinbase is building, like the custody services. But we also hear about the trading desks at JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs. They obviously, they see it in the same way that we were talking before. There's many different facets to the way you can look at cryptocurrencies. Um, all crypto assets, crypto tokens, whatever they are actually meant to represent. I think the infrastructure is definitely important. And speaking from an enterprise perspective, that's a lot of the DLT blockchain projects out there are infrastructure based and they're designed to be able to change the way that value is is 
transported around the world. Which I guess is um, that point around the 94 piece, right? We're, yeah. we're not building the businesses necessarily. We're still building the stuff, the infrastructure that the, inf- the businesses will be built on. But there was this sort of thesis around fat protocols that actually the value would accrue to the protocol builders. And in some cases that may be true, but in a lot of cases, you know, the bear market is really flushing out a lot a lot where that's not the case. Okay, they talk to me about custody. Why does somebody want custody in traditional financial markets and why might they want it with a crypto asset? Absolutely. It's all, it's all linked to this, basically. It's all, uh, it's all about demand at the end of the day, right? So um, if, you, if you just looked at cryptocurrencies, uh, what sparkle demand is, uh, the volatility piece, and you, we have a new, new tool to play. A lot of traders started saying that. However, the infrastructure, we have still a big problem with, inf- with the infrastructure. So it's not at the levels where the financial services uh, industry is. And I don't trust these new players because there's no track record. So they started coming to the different, the, the big custodians, like such as, you know, State Street as well, with this type of question. So uh, why is it important for any type of asset? Well, you have to prove it exists. You have to uh, apply taxation to it. You have to have uh, services for, for, for your funds. You have to, um, you know, there's a lot of processes uh, linked to the assets underlying. And it's not only the settlement and knowing that legally it's gone from one person to the other, but is all the, the, the rippling effect of all the other people connecting to that asset, beneficial owner, legal owners that have to uh, be involved in, in, in that big piece. So when you're dealing with institutional money, you have institutional admin and sometimes having somebody that can deal with that institutional admin is kind of um, an interesting place to be. I, I find it interesting that this, this kind of uh, sobriety seems to be spreading you know after after all of that hype we're in straight straight edge crypto right now it's um it's a nice place to be um but you know kind of pulling us in the opposite direction story from business insider uh, venezuela just uh, devalued the bolivia by 95 percent and pegged it to a cryptocurrency do, uh, have you looked into this one alex what do you have the detail of, of what's really going on here not a huge amount of detail i mean this just today uh really was just today. They've created an entirely new currency. So it used to be the strong Bolivar. It's now the uh, sovereign Bolivar. They've lopped, I think, five zeros off it. So the old minimum wage used to be 118 million strong Bolivar each month. The new minimum wage is 18,000 sovereign Bolivar each month. I mean, you know, we're still talking big numbers, right? This This is not generally a situation you want a currency to be in. But what what I find interesting is just uh, the the cryptocurrency which which the Venezuelan government launched, the Petro, uh, was widely seen as essentially just another attempt to, to peg the Venezuelan economy to oil and to bring dollars in, to bring hard money in. It, it seemed to have worked a, a bit like people bought them and people bought them using currencies other than bolivars. You weren't allowed to buy them using bolivars. Like it was fairly transparently an effort to just bring other currencies in. Around currency controls and around sanctions. Around, exactly. And to, to use it to sell oil for currency, which is what the Venezuelan economy has been pretty much entirely for the last 20 years. Yeah, but from a, from a pure economic perspective, I'm bringing my, my, my master's education back, but is pegging a currency to an asset, to a, to a commodity, for which your production is going to zero. Your sales and your export are going to zero. And uh, you want to peg that to that? I mean, it's not gold standard anymore. This is something else. I mean, I want to peg me selling pencils, but I don't produce them anymore. I don't want to sell them because I want to control everything. So it's an open economy versus a closed economy with a funny peg. So I don't get it. I, I, I don't get it. And I, it's sad, you know, 400,000 people leave a year. Uh, you know, it's, it has a strong human effect. There's a, like, there's a lot of wars, like intellectual wars fought over the state of Venezuela now. But at, at base, it's quite simple, which is that if you have an oil economy which no longer makes any oil, there is going to be problems. And if you have a state that is subject to various controls from uh, international policy and standards bodies that, uh, you know, trying to deal with a state that has gone a little bit rogue, one might argue, then it's the people that lose here. Um, And it's interesting that it frustrates me to a certain degree as a fan of this technology, as a fan of the area, that these these are the things that make the headlines, not the things that that can make a real difference to people's lives. I agree. That is being used for uh, for kind of this purpose. But it it says something about the fact that the 
this story sells that the original mm. perception of Bitcoin was used for drugs, now Bitcoin is used for this, when in reality, 90, 90 to 95% of the use of crypto is speculation, which you know, isn't intrinsically bad. It isn't also intrinsically great, but it's better. Um, and, and then maybe maybe we could see progress from there. And this isn't a decentralized currency, right? So, you know, this is in, in essence a pseudo stable coin benched against, uh, you know, a, a Barrels of oil, you know, vaults of oil. Oil reserve Um, control. So I don't see how that's going to decouple the the sovereign risk um, associated with the economy in any way. It's just, I'm assuming to prevent capital flight. I don't really. The thing I did find fascinating about it when it was launched was despite all of these obvious downsides, there was a little groundswell of of glee from some people who were like, a state has, has jumped on board. You know, this is state support for, for crypto and then it, it, it took about a week for that to die out as almost everyone looked Realizing, closer oh, this like, oh, this is bad. Is, yeah this yeah. is not a vote of confidence <laughs> this, this is, is bad not for humans yeah. we're not going to be including it, this it, in it, our it's not S1. quite the same as um the swiss for instance having uh, their regulators put out clear guidance on how you manage crypto from a tax perspective in their jurisdiction or uh, from even the u.s regulators having put out a lot of guidance uh, it's interesting when a big state does something it never does it all at once it does it in these baby steps so everybody's looking feels to me like everybody's looking for that moment that crypto is going to arrive and yet you don't really discover what that moment was until you're looking back 10 years like nobody really knows the moment when they're in it like when the iPhone happened people sort of realized it was significant but you didn't realize the game changer necessarily that it was gonna be and and maybe it's the same here well things will happen and people go oh that thing happened you know but was that the moment was it when the New York Stock Exchange announced the futures was it when CME did it what what was the moment Uh, I don't think we'll know for a while it's good that we are here to look at it Mm. (laughs) and it's probably not this Uh, (laughs) oh all right next story comes from Bloomberg Uh, Nvidia gives a disappointing sales forecast on lower crypto demand so Nvidia Corp uh, who are the manufacturer of uh, gaming GPUs and they and, and that are being used heavily by uh, some of the early uh, kind of Ethereum mining rigs that were, were out there as a way of basically mining and generating your own uh, ETH at home, uh, had, a, had a gold rush effectively. People were buying lots and lots of their chips so that they could mine Ethereum and other crypto, but those sales have dried up since the price has dramatically decreased in those crypto assets. Um, and that's hit NVIDIA shares. I mean, NVIDIA shares were down 3.7% pre-market on Friday last week, um, and they expected to sell about $100 million of sales in chips bought by cryptocurrency miners in the second quarter, but they actually only sold $18 million, uh, and that revenue is likely to disappear going forward. I mean, Alex, have you looked at this one? I was fascinated by this because I was stunned that NVIDIA was selling that many to any miners ever. Like, my, my sort of rough guide to this whole thing is that uh, GPU mining went out of fashion three, four years ago. It first went to uh, FGPAs and then to ASICs. So I can only assume that that even the hundred, well, the eighteen million sold went largely to people who didn't really know what they were doing. Or, uh, no, no. So what happened was after Ethereum was launched, mm-hmm. um, so they went to proof of work mining, but the difficulty was much more, uh, much lower, and so it was much more achievable for somebody with a GPU or ten GPUs lined up to make quite a bit of money for themselves mining with that compared to Bitcoin, where it's long since become professionalized. Uh, so it was, it was a different beast, and uh, yeah, this is what was interesting is this takes. Uh, crypto mainstream in a way that sort of Kodak coin didn't. This is this is kind of the other side of it. Mm-hmm. Somebody really losing from the manufacturing end, and you know we saw with the Bitmain IPO that like the cryptocurrency mining operations or the producers, you know the people selling shovels in the gold rush, were the ones that won, but also might be the ones that lose. Well, Nvidia, they're a chip producer. They're not a specific for crypto mining chip producer and the chips were originally graphic cards for gaming which were, were held in high regard so I'm told um, kind of awesome yeah, yeah. I mean they, they, yeah. they the, sold the, loads the, of the, the, well, they announced TI, <laughs> the TI 1080 is, is, is they a announced of a chip. three t- new chips yesterday so yes. let's not feel too bad for them because their stock jumped 3% overnight yeah the, the 2080 looks incredible yeah Sarah as you're saying that's not the, the mining is not the core business no so it's, they have fundamentals and this was you know a lucky shot they made a lot of money for a couple of quarters great it, it says something about those get rich quick things used by a ceo you know like it did bump their share price but it also bumped it back down like was it worth charging into this i mean people were going to use those chips for it 
anyway, why not take the sales? I mean, it's an interesting challenge. I'll give you, I'll give you a parallel. During 2011, so the second Italian crisis uh, from a financial perspective, after the big September 2008, in Italy, banks could, uh, had to stop lending to each other. So there was like a rule that they were not they couldn't really do it. So they had to turn into the clearinghouse that had a bank, uh, didn't have a banking license so they could lend money via you know, the margins they were taking on, on the derivatives uh, trading. So uh, the group owning that clearinghouse started making a lot of money for those quarters. And then as soon as the interest rates started changing and the, the, the rule changed as well, back to normal. This happens in the life of a corporate. Yeah, I was working there. <laughs> <laughs> remember it's, those heady days where the profits were up and Michele was there and then you saw the, saw the end and escaped buying Bitcoin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, also what's bad news for crypto is good news for machine learning. That there are uh, people, people in that field have spent the last year or so really complaining that they can't get the GPUs that they need because they're being outbid. And, you know, buy, buying a new uh, top-end NVIDIA GPU was not impossible for several months at the beginning of this year. So you're already turning to eBay and buying second-hand ones or buying ones which have been bought in bulk and were being broken up and sold. And, yeah, the machine learning people who, let's say, have a longer-term revenue horizon than a lot of the people who were buying them for crypto mining, they were being outbid. And so, you know, they had to turn to the... You know, expensive cloud computing if you wanted to do it that way to buy well rent space on Amazon's GPUs so yeah good news for them if you want to get a cluster of 32 NVIDIA GPUs trying to teach them how to speak German now you can there is a bit of a spiritual battle between machine learning and crypto for like uh, <laughs> buzziest <laughs> tech yeah <laughs> what's really the future of tech is it the Silicon Valley like blockchain and AI yeah mm-hmm. oh yeah no convergence thesis yeah well in fact in A16's crypto's launch they actually announced their next three mega trends so their previous three mega trends were social cloud and mobile and the three now are uh, crypto machine learning and IoT which, you know, like, I guess, a cursory glance at anything from any of the big strategy consultants in the last three years, you could have guessed those. But it's interesting that they're putting their money towards that stuff. Um, all right, next story comes from Bloomberg.com. And uh, the lack of correlation for Bitcoin sees little relief as markets sell off. Um, so the cryptocurrency sell off has dragged on longer and sunk even deeper. Um, there's a great statement here, which is non-correlation. So basically, Bitcoin not going down anywhere near the same speed as everything else is not the same as inverse correlation. So Bitcoin isn't going up. Um, so there's no guarantee that when the market goes down, crypto will go up. You know, where Bitcoin goes down, the so that peg that seemed to exist that you know Bitcoin would uh, would slow down and the alts would go up and then uh, the alts would slow down and Bitcoin would go up. There used to be this wash back and forth. Now it's like now Bitcoin's kind of sliding a little bit and everything else is just going way faster so uh yeah bitcoin's uh held a correlation of 0.7 with bitwise's 70 small cap and 10 large cap crypto indexes for most of the year are we still in the bizarre land of volatility here michaela i mean does does this look not dissimilar from what you'd see in commodities markets well never really worked in a commodities market i have to say but uh what, what looks to me you know from this story is that the traders behind all of this are different beasts from the financial services that we know so they don't follow the same rules um and and i cannot really see the behavioral the behavior of the trading of some of these people but you know you know, this correlation not being there is not surprising at all. So we were there in 2014, 2015, when people started trading. I could have well be you and I making millions and or billions, right, trading. So, and I don't have a finance trading background. Um, so uh, it's, we're trying to apply this, this structure of what the, the trading market is onto... That's um, interesting. You, um, with all due respect, geeks that uh, found this interesting thing on uh, on Reddit and, and they started buying it. You've got these technically sophisticated people who ended up crypto rich that aren't behaving like financial markets might, given the same fundamentals. I mean, Tina, how, how are you viewing this? Um, well, I think that, you know, if you look at people that were investing in crypto to begin with, um, there are the the geeks, right? The, the people that were, you know, in 2012 going, hey, you got to get behind this Bitcoin thing. And then we've moved moved into the more sophisticated investor who decided to get involved because they were seeking yield, right? 
the interest rates were low and they were looking for a higher yield return. But we're in a crypto bear market, right? This is a crypto winter. It's not nice. Um, and so it's hard for those investors to be making any money right now. The correlation, I think we all know that the, the, there isn't one. What we did see previously was a correlation across Bitcoin and the altcoins. And I think that's what's interesting here, mm-hmm. that they're not moving in lockstep anymore. But I think a lot of that has to do with, um, again, people being a little bit more diligent around their due diligence um, and understanding the difference between you know mature uh, tokens and those that are emerging. Um, there's been a lot more focus being spent over the last six months on identifying, you know, kind of scam activity, um, ICOs that haven't developed or delivered projects that they promised. So I think that people are becoming a little bit more wary about where they're investing their money. Um, And as the news hits where people are like, oh, I'm losing, you know, my house because I decided to max out my credit card and go buy a bunch of altcoins, um, you know, we see these stories every day. So I think that kind of adds to the skepticism. Yeah. And back um, very quickly back on the back on the price and this is still a very concentrated market uh, where who holds and who can move things who can move the price um, according to whatever volumes they got uh, so it's uh, it's not surprising you know the market the traders composition is definitely changes as you're saying Tina but it's probably you know it's still will, it will take some time to actually see that uh, market behavior change in consequence uh, RNG SAS himself Colin G Platt has said for a long time these things will either go to zero or they won't and um, behind that seemingly kind of uh, flippant tautology yeah, well, flippant Alex has statement. a theory on that Alex why don't you share with everyone I your theory this on Bitcoin Platt, by the yeah, way. I hear, it's a, I hear <laughs> it lives near a field somewhere <laughs> my, my general theory I have so many theories come on, on tell us how you uh, really feel I'm almost certain. I, 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 not almost certain. God, that would be uh, staking myself for the future. That You're not on the spot right now. For me, forever. It's not like it's um, going on a podcast that'll live forever. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's mutable um, every word. No, I am. I am the Bitcoin cynic around the table. Um, I'm. I'm generally the crypto cynic. I think my thing about Bitcoin is there are only two futures for it. Really, it's kind of, it basically the same thing. It will go to zero. It won't. The it won't is it will be, uh, you know roughly speaking a significant proportion of the global wealth will be stored in it there are there are two up op- two options what there's not really is a, is a middle case scenario where bitcoin hovers along with the market cap of you know of an apple or a facebook does well people people have bought into it and and it stays as a, a an aspect of tech it is either the world economy is this one uh still really the only crypto asset which is thoroughly used as a store of value or, or it doesn't. I don't see a, a middle world for Bitcoin. A middle earth. is a question about fundamentals. Exactly. And one of the things that's really interesting about this market is that no one has even agreed how to talk about fundamentals. You know, if, if you're talking about pricing for, for a stock, if you're talking about pricing for a bond, we have years of at least various ways to discuss it. You know, no one gets it right, but people can at least say when I want, when, I, when I'm making a price target of Apple uh, at, you know, hitting a market cap of a trillion. You can point to its revenue. You can point to whether you think that revenue will go up or down. There's not even really good arguments about how to have that discussion when it comes to most crypto assets. And this is a problem because it does mean that you end up with an incredibly noisy market. Which there's, is- there's a lot of theories, right? So uh, hmm. Chris Beniski would argue um, future utility, um, expected future utility, which is unproven because we haven't seen that over a cycle. You'd have uh, the the expected 2050 market cap, which is what coin market cap uses, which is when all of these things have been printed based on their price today, what would it be worth in the future? But then it's kind of out of nowhere. And so the, there are some serious questions that it has to answer. But we have seen assets go through this historically i mean the us dollar was made out of nothing and you know we we started to learn to trust that so it's it's not beyond the realm of possibility but because its intent is to be global then it would need that global scale to do that there's a third argument i've heard which is just one i want to throw at you which is this idea that the premium is representing the cost of securing the network in other words the game theory that secures the network the fact that the miners won't collude they're doing so that price it reaches an equilibrium because it's in their interest to keep mining and it's in their interest to not collude therefore people are effectively paying or its value is linked 
to the fact that this decentralized network continues to exist and continues to be secure. This is the John Matonis hash rate matters argument. I, I don't think I'm sold on any three of those, but all of them I accept could be possibility. It's uh, it's, it's interesting. So those are two exogenous model and one endogenous model. Mm-hmm. So the the latter. So I'll uh, I'll take a look at it. I I don't know. I heard in different angles of the stable coin world that you if you want to build a stable coin has to be has to have some element of endogenating to mm-hmm. the model for for the price you know to be stable. Else. It doesn't make sense at all. So um, it's, it's very interesting to witness uh, this and where it was going to go. And, and, and there's always the classic argument, which is, you know, MySpace wasn't the last social network, but it was an early one. And so therefore, um, is there something in tokenizing value? Is there something in uh, the idea of, of globalizing financial systems and decentralizing financial systems? There's probably a macro trend there that's interesting, but um, does it have to be Bitcoin? I don't know. Yeah, but, I mean, uh, that'll you, just get the maximalist mad, won't it? You weren't a fan of the Bitcoin is the internet in 1994 argument. Neither am I. I think that if, if you even draw that analogy, it's the internet in the 1970s, you know? Yeah. It's uh, it could be the foundation of something big, but it's hard to see, even if it is, how being there on the ground floor actually helps you financially. You know, the people who were writing the RFCs in the 1970s were really laying the groundwork for the internet, but they didn't own the RFCs. You you, you know, if you built a business then. It will have pivoted through several iterations before being the valuable business it is today. It's not as simple as you bought something internet-related in the 1970s and stuck with it, and that was fine. I remember saying in uh, 2015 when I was working for for Barclays at the time, somebody asked me, uh, what do you see for the future of this stuff? And I said, by the end of my career, I'll still be trying to make this stuff happen. Um, (laughs) I I think that... it's incredibly interesting, but it'll come in bits and phases, is, is my own view. Um, but, I mean, that sort of says that we're in the trough of disillusionment, right? I mean, that's the next story from Coinbase.com. So Gartner have, um, if you've not seen the hype cycle, is everybody familiar with the hype cycle around the table? I'm seeing nods. If you're not familiar, uh, it basically looks like a giant uh, roller coaster. So you go right up the top of the roller coaster. I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. And then I knew I could. I knew you come all the way back down into the trough of disillusionment, and then you go to get it the plateau of productivity that's where you want to be that's 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 really where you're at um and so the um you know i guess six months ago nine months ago would have been at the peak of the hype cycle oh my god this is amazing it's going to change the world and now sell everything um and gartner's hype cycle suggests that eventually you would get to the point at which uh this thing is is going to be productive but i I didn't see the time horizon they put on it five to ten years they said five to ten years it'll be productive what does it mean and what does you know the uh what does blockchain mean as well? Um, <laughs> I mean, we should know we're on blockchain insider. Yeah. But, it, but, but I, think, I take your point though; those definitions still haven't been hashed out. Excuse the pun. Um, ooh, but what's nice. di- distributed ledger technology? What's blockchain? Is there a definite uh, consensus around that? Sorry, I just can't help using all of these blockchain words. Well, you have the same in AI, right, Alex? I mean, there's, yeah. there's no such thing as AI. There's just lots of different discrete technologies. That exactly, are and it's worth noting that Gartner's hype cycle is uh, fair. Fairly retroactive might be the nice way of looking at it. It, yeah. it. it tends to describe what you already know. You won't see. You mean them, consultants tell you things exactly. you already knew? No. Uh, you won't see them sort of declaring something which everyone is quite hypey about as actually a bit disillusionment. It is, to be fair, deliberately a uh, a descriptive piece of research. The thing that's more interesting is you also uh, won't see them talking that much about the stuff that just disappears from the chart. You know, occasionally there are products which don't go. Uh, hype, 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 trough, 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 plateau of productivity. They are hype, 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 because, you know, everyone gets bored and they genuinely disappear. Gartner doesn't leave them on the cycle hovering in the trough for 15, 20, 30 years. Gartner quietly removes them one quarter and they're not I'd love to see the hype cycle for companies like Magic Leap, for instance. That'd be a fun one to do. Which is very in the trough right now. (laughs) I think, I mean, a lot of these interesting and important projects really do take some time. And it really takes time to change a whole market infrastructure and see, I'm sure you will know the Climatics flagship project, Utility Assessment Coin. That's been going for over two years now. It's making progress, though, all the time. There's 17 members of the consortium now, and we did the POC with the Bank of England. We're speaking to central banks. It's it's progressing, but it's a long, hard, truly innovative project. Three years ago, when I was you know, still at HSBC, there were a number of times when people came to me and said, Tina, we really need to be talking about blockchain. 
And I would say, okay, well, what exactly would mm-hmm. you like to talk about? Well, you know, we need to be thought leaders of blockchain. And I said, great, well, let's unpack what that is. And this was some time ago when I think not anyone really knew what the commercial applications could be in financial services for sure, right? And so there really was something to unpack. But over the last two to three years, there has been a lot of hype. I mean, it's constantly being talked about in mainstream press now. And I think what's interesting about that is how many articles do you read on machine learning or quantum computing? Very few, but blockchain all day long, every day, twice on Sunday. But to your point, Sarah, I think that what I'm seeing now are incredibly smart, um, very, uh, you know, mature people um, who have had established careers moving into the blockchain space. I think that says something about the promise of what the technology can deliver. And in my opinion, I think that we probably will see these projects become more productive in a shorter time span than 10 years. For me, what's interesting is a couple of weak signals. Uh, the A16Z crypto fund, um, the amount of people in Facebook, you know, David Marcus has taken the job of, of the head of their blockchain division. Um, you know, David Marcus is not a slouch as an executive former CEO of PayPal. Uh, and these weak signals suggest that what may what we may be talking about in three to five years may even have a different term. Like we used to talk about machine to machine, we now talk about IoT. It'll get a different label and underneath there may be some material differences in the tech. Um, but there's the old Clayton Christensen disruptive innovation versus um, kind of uh, the efficiency innovation. What I'm seeing in financial markets is people doing the hard yards, really re-architecting uh, how things work, um, both from a business process standpoint and from a technology standpoint and a lot of it's inspired by blockchain and dnt some of it is genuinely using some of the tools um, but also financial services was one of the first to adopt you know kind of networks long before the internet existed like if anybody can make something work it's the banks almost adopt it too early hence the tech debt they've got these days so they're they're really charging at adopting some of this stuff and maybe that's a bit of an accident of history because bitcoin came along and was going to reinvent money and the banks kind of had to pay attention and, and can take notice but now you know th- there's a two types of technologists there's like the the cypherpunk who you know is really about the protocol and the open source tech and then there's the product person who really is about building that consumer facing product um, and the difference between somebody who builds that consumer facing product is you know like the the guys at uh, the folks at stripe the folks at square the people who uh, really do build that consumer product that you know your your parents would use uh you know the the early majority late majority would use that's very different to who've been using crypto crypto has been about the punters it's been about that sort of thing and so you know the trough of disillusionment makes sense but maybe there's something there in those weak signals i don't know if you had thoughts on that spot on simon from my perspective there are um the use of blockchain as an append only recording transactions distributed database right uh, that a lot of uh, banks and a lot of people are using to uh, to replatform their backends. That's one story, and that will have the their t- its time, right? ASX is doing a lot of it. Uh, on the other side, assets are changing. So the way we are looking at assets, crypto assets or uh, digitized assets, digitalized assets, you know, whatever you want to call them, are changing. So a bond tomorrow is not the way we know it. It's not a piece of paper with my name and, and a coupon that you can even strip from it and, and I give it to you. Yeah, Tina, they call and it a coupon pay. on purpose, right? Ex- <laughs> well, it was like that, right? So th- if assets are changing, therefore the infrastructure has to change with it, right? And financial services will act in a different way. And the, the backbone of it will be built in a different way. So blockchain doesn't come by itself, right? Because every blockchain has to be deployed and the deployment will be on cloud. But also, okay, it's a lot of data there. Okay, great. You know, big data and all those fancy things come in. So um, assets change, instruments are changing, therefore money will change too. And that's kind of brings us back to the conversation. And so I think there's um, something about the new narratives that are emerging. Um, the new narratives around stable coins, the new narratives around you know where we're going, and when we're in a trough of disillusionment, we start looking for those new narratives, and we start looking for things that we can anchor to. So we should we should recognise that. But I think that point about uh, we're going to start seeing uh, different uh, asset classes come along. Uh, it starts in the underserved and overcharged, right? I mean, PayPal anchored onto eBay, but they also went after the type of uh, merchant that couldn't sell online historically underserved and overcharged you segment the market and you go after the bottom end we solve the problem 
That's a problem. So instead of trying to use the technology because it's the next cool thing and try and find a problem to use the technology, why don't we look at solving some problems? And then if this technology fits, you know, quids in. Um, But the number of conversations that I have, and I know we all do around, oh, I have this great idea for blockchain. And you think, well, okay, number one, that's not a great idea. Number two, what problem are you solving? And, you know, what are the tokenomics around this? I see this over and over and over. So let's solve some problems. Here, here. I think the need to build product, and I I do think the non-fungible token space is going to be interesting. The, you know, the humble crypto kitty looks like a toy, but they say it always starts out looking like a toy. So there's going to be some interesting times ahead of us for sure. And maybe what it, what bit Bitcoin is and what crypto becomes are two very different things. All right, before we move on to the next stuff, I've just got to remind listeners that today's episode of Blockchain Insider is brought to you by uh, the lovely folks at R3 in their red t-shirts. Um, so R3's quarter platform delivers on the promise of delivering blockchain for business. And by the way, um, they're visiting. if you're visiting London this September, and if you're a member of the R3 ecosystem, are we members of the R3 ecosystem? I don't know what that means. Uh, you should plan <laughs> to join the 400 attendees at their flagship co- conference Cordicon on uh, September the 12th and 13th. I hope there are Trekkies there. Um, I really hope it's like a convention stuff. Like, I really want to spend more time around Mike Hearn. And uh, the event's split into two days, Biz Day and Dev Day. Um, I don't know if, uh, which one of those I'm going to find myself at. But if you're a technologist or a developer, don't miss Dev Day, because actually I'm hearing a lot more engineers that finally look at this stuff and go, oh... That's actually quite interesting. Um, it was Gideon Greenspan uh, looked at, uh, you know, who's a famous blogger, and, and looked at Corda and went, that's weird, but it's interesting. So, you know, if you're a member, your partner, or your regulator, don't miss Biz Day on the 13th of September. And they've got speaker lineup that includes um, folks from the European Central Bank, uh, HSBC, Finastra, Microsoft, uh, Guild One, which sounds like they're from Fortnite or something, but actually yeah. Todd, told me, Todd told me last night, uh, last time we were on the show that they're doing some really interesting thing about carbon trading and uh, carbon credits, so really, uh, really interesting bunch, and uh, Blockchain Insider will be there, so if you want to come make fun of us, that's the place to do it. Visit r3.com forward slash Cordicon to register. Okay, quickly cantering through some stories we didn't have time to cover. Um, On Forbes, Vitalik Buterin on the state of Ethereum, the future of blockchain, and Google trying to hire him. That was a great interview. I really liked a Medium piece. It was on Handshake, ENS, and decentralized naming services. If you've not checked that out, Alex, that's well worth a read. I can send you the link. And really, like, what does a decentralized naming service really mean for the future of the internet? I think that's where stuff starts to get fun. Uh, and then a story from Token Economy, the good guys over there, about the market narratives uh, and uh, are changing. The Crypto Narrative Index has been launched, which I thought was a really interesting piece of work, like keeping track of narratives. What, what a crazy piece. Um, and what's going on in digital financial markets. Tweet of the Week comes from Colin G. Platt. Time for the Tweet of the Week. Tweet, tweet. Tweet, tweet. It's the tweet of the week. Tweet of the week. The tweet goes, it's by Josh Wolf, uh, who's at Wolf Josh on Twitter, and it says, question, how do I explain Bitcoin to my grandpa? Uh, and then uh, the, the guy that uh, had either replied or that this guy was quoting says, imagine if keeping your car idling 24-7 produced solved Sudokus you could trade for heroin. <laughs> Why is it always heroin? <laughs> heroin and hookers. <laughs> My favorite great. response was the dancing Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. So groovy Jesus apparently can explain Bitcoin to your grandpa. All right. That one's for next week. Yeah. <laughs> I want to know more about groovy Jesus. Groovy Jesus. Um, but that wraps up today's show. Um, just a reminder that 11FS, we're a challenger consultancy and we're building uh, the next generation of financial services for banks and uh, for anybody, really. Um, you know, We've got some technology company clients and all sorts. There's a lot of great work, requires a lot of great people. So if you're a product manager, if you're a Java developer, or if you're just interested in helping shape the future of financial services, head to 11fs.com forward slash careers and please subscribe. Don't forget to leave us a review. Um, review like different comments that have been said. Review the fact that um, I'm not reading these notes well. 
Give me some stick about it. All right. Um, and we're taking the show live on the 26th of September at the London Olympia. We're going to be at Blockchain Live. Head over to blockchainlive.com to find out more. Uh, I want to thank our amazing production team here at 11FS. Uh, producer Petra, who's not with us. Producer Laura, who is. Um, Petra hasn't died, by the way. He's just gone on holiday. <laughs> uh, Holly, our editor. Michael, our editor. Um, and, of course, our fabulous guests. Uh, Tina, where can people find out more about you? On Twitter, at at T-E-A-N-A Taylor or at coinfloor.com Brilliant Tina thank you Sarah You can find me on Twitter at Seronimo or you can find Claymatics on Twitter at Claymatics or you can go to claymatics.com forward slash careers I think or just click on the careers bit or github.com forward slash Claymatics And then you should go to 11fs.com forward slash careers no, stay on climatic. <laughs> it depends on what you want. All right. We're hiring uh, developers. Yeah. Uh, I will fight you. We <laughs> uh, will win. Oh, that's fine. Talk. Uh, Michele, how about yourself? I don't tweet that much, so you can find me on LinkedIn if uh, you want to connect with me or and on the website of State Street, statestreet.com. Statestreet.com, you heard it there. Um, Alex, how about your good self? I tweet far too much at Alex Hearn. <laughs> Uh, and I think we're probably hiring developers all as well, although maybe not with blockchain experience yet. I don't know. Like, how do you make a Guardian story really last forever in the middle of a crisis? You know, We've that- had discussions about this, and the thing that a lot of journalists had is they don't really want it to last forever. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes we publish mistakes, and we really want to be able to remove them, yeah. or else we get sued. Oh, you just publish the fact that you did publish the new <laughs> version, and there'd be an audit trail of the retraction, which would be what everybody would want, right? No? Uh, all right. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. Uh, We'll have more Blockchain Insider next week. Thank you for now and goodbye.